morning, Woods Edge. How are we doing? Good. It's good to be here with you this morning. As, uh, as Pastor Kevin said, uh, I'm on staff at the Austin Stone Community Church in Austin, Texas. I bring greetings from our nation's capital to you guys. Um, that's right. Um, as he said, I, I grew up here. I, I, I went to Klein High School, but and I actually, after I went to college at UT, I moved back here for a season, uh, and I met my wife in college. Uh, we didn't start dating then. We actually just became friends, and, and uh, the friendship grew. I moved to spring. She moved to Turkey to be on a church planning team there, and uh, that's when I was like, hey, wait a second. I should marry this girl, and so I kind of uh, had a moment where I was like, all right, I'm, I need to kind of share my feelings with her, make that happen. You know, I was over Skype. I can remember we, we had a really serious conversation and sharing my feelings with her, laying it all out there. And she very seriously uh, said to me in that moment, um, Stephen, I need to tell you something. I'm never moving to Houston. Now, you got to understand, my wife is from Austin. She grew up in Austin, and, and people from Austin are a little, you know... Uh, and for, it's the worst thing in the entire world that could ever happen to a person from Austin that they would have to move to Dallas or Houston. It's just the way it is. And so basically what she was saying to me in that statement was that she would rather, you know, seven hours apart over Skype, she would rather live in a hostile Muslim country than Houston, Texas. <laughs> it's just the way it goes. Sorry. Um, but yeah, we, we, uh, we got married. She moved to Houston and we got dated. We, we dated, we got engaged, we got married and moved right to Austin, of course. Um, and then... Uh, and uh, been there ever since. It's truly an honor to be here with you guys this morning, um, to get to preach in my hometown, which is an amazing gift to me, an amazing pleasure for me. So thank you, thank you guys for having me. I want, I want to talk this morning about uh, something that's one of the most basic and yet one of the most foundational aspects of the Christian life. Uh, it's one of those things that it gets mentioned a lot. We sing about it a lot. We just sang about it. We, we sing about it from a very young age. Uh, we talk about it a lot, but it's one of those things that I'm always a little unsure that people really know what we're talking about when, when it gets mentioned, when it gets brought up. And more importantly, I, I, I always wonder if Christians, people who claim to follow Christ, actually ever can truly in their heart of hearts say that they've ever really experienced this or they ever do this in their life. What am I talking about? I'm talking about loving Jesus. I'm talking about loving Jesus. Do you love Jesus? It's a simple question. Now, I don't know you all, I've never met you all, but I can say with absolute confidence this morning that me, guest preacher, getting you to ask this question of yourself and wrestle with this question a little bit in your heart is the absolute best use of our time this morning. You, you, you got to get to the bottom of this this morning, and, and, and it will set the trajectory of your life until the day that you die and meet Jesus. And for the Apostle Paul, who, who we're going to talk about briefly this morning, it's, it's one of the most important questions that he could leave us with. Do you love Jesus? So here's what I want to do. If you've got a Bible, uh, you can open it up or turn it on uh, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to look at the very last words of Paul to the Ephesians. And before we read the text together this morning, I just want to start by making a, a fairly obvious statement that, to many of you, and that, that is that last words matter. A person's last words, they, they, they're, they're significant sometimes, right? Uh, preaching professors in seminary, they'll often admit to their students that, that preaching the ends of New Testament epistles, the letters that we have in the, in the Bible, they can often be a very difficult thing to do, and they're usually right. 
Because, I mean, whenever you read these, these epistles, these letters, it's always, you know, greet this guy or receive this brother or something in there about a holy kiss, which it's a verse I choose not to apply in my own life. We can talk about that later. Um, but Ephesians ends a little differently. Uh, it, Paul's last words here at the end of Ephesians are very unique. We don't have any other letters like that he ends like this. And so, as you know, last words, they can sometimes be the most important. They can, they, they, they're, they're meant to ring in your ears a little bit longer than, than the other words, which it certainly seems like that's what Paul's trying to do here. Uh, recently, my wife's uncle, Uncle Jesse, uh, he, he died of cancer. Um, he was an incredibly godly man. I have no doubt he's in heaven right now worshiping Jesus. Uh, faithful to the very end. Uh, I was honored that I got to know him, but I, but I can remember in the last weeks of his life, uh, he wanted to get everyone together. He wanted to get a big family reunion together, and he wanted to, to kind of say his last goodbyes to people and, and share that moment with them. And it was kind of a strange moment for some of us, as you can probably imagine. But I can remember at the end of that family reunion, they led him out to his car so that he could, you know, get driven home. And we're all in the driveway there, and he's going person by person. And he's saying his last words to a lot of us. And I can remember when he, he got to me, he walked right up to me, and he, he looked me right in the eye, and he, and he stuck his hand out and shook my hand, and he, and he said, very calmly but very urgently, serve the Lord. Money's nothing. And then he moved on to the next person. Now, Uncle Jesse did and said a lot of really profound things in his life. I mean, he served overseas in missions. He gave to missions. He was a deacon for decades at First Baptist Church, Crockett, Texas. He would read the Word every morning. He would often share with us what he was reading in the Word. Just an awesome guy. Did so many great, significant, profound things. But for some reason, those simple words that he left me with, they seemed more significant. They seemed weightier to me than all the other things he's said to me. And that's the effect that Paul's words have here at the end of Ephesians. That's what they sh should have a f a that effect on all of us here this morning. And so with that in mind, let's look together at, at Paul's last words to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now up until this point, Paul has covered a lot of really amazing things in this letter to the Ephesians. I mean, the Ephesians, if you didn't know, is one of the most theologically celebrated, uh, theologically comprehensive books in the whole Bible. There's glorious, amazing, weighty, life-altering, mind-blowing truths about our God and about our Jesus in this letter. In chapter 1, for instance, he talks about this great salvation that we have in Jesus, that we've been raised to life through him, that we've been predestined to adoption as sons and daughters, and that in Christ we've been given in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In chapter 2, he talks about this great reconciliation that we have in this gospel of grace, that God not only was reconciling us to himself, turning us from being his enemies to now being his children, but he also is telling us about the horizontal implications of this gospel. God also means to bring us together, to break down walls of hostility that exist between brothers and sisters in Christ, and in so doing, he intends to make his presence dwell among his new reconciled people. In chapter 3, he talks about how God is able to do far more abundantly in us than all that we could ask or think because of this new power that he's put inside of us, the power of the resurrected Christ and his Holy Spirit who raised him from the dead. It's in us. We have access to this power. 
In chapter 4, he talks about how because of what God has done in us, for us, we can put away the old self, the old man with his old sinful desires, things like falsehood and anger and love of money, and we can put on the new self, a new creation in Christ who walks in holiness. In chapter 5, he talks about worship and how the worship of God should fill our hearts and totally transform every area of our life, our marriages, our parenting, our workplace, and our sexuality. And in chapter 6, he talks about the warfare that we're in as Christians against a very real and present enemy who would love to steal, kill, and destroy, and how we are to arm ourselves in this battle and stand against his schemes. So many high and lofty and precious doctrines, everything from election, predestination, all the way to spiritual warfare, and, and all these things are incredible. I mean, you, people spend their whole life studying this stuff. But Paul's last words, what he leaves us with, is the most central aspect of the Christian life. If we don't get this, we completely miss the point of being a Christian. It, it is, in a way, the, the summation, the pinnacle of all of our knowledge of God, all of our belief in his gospel, and all of our obedience to his ways. It, it's all that Paul has written in this letter, and all that we do as Christians, it's what all of that stuff should lead you to. And that is loving our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. He says in the last verse, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now our God is a gracious God. His grace is amazing. We sing about it. But, but you see, this grace is only for those who love his son. God's special saving grace flows to you only through his son Jesus. And hear this, if you do not love the son then you will not experience this grace that Paul is extending to the Ephesians that he's talking about here at the end. This grace is for those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, he says. How do you know if you're a Christian this morning? You ever ask that of yourself? How do I know if I'm a Christian? Well, the Bible gives us a lot of ways to answer that question. And one of the diagnostic ways that Paul gives us here at the end of Ephesians to test ourselves on that question of how we can know whether we're a Christian or not is, if we love Jesus, if we love him, if we love him with a love incorruptible, he says. It's those people, you see, who, who prove that they have received grace upon grace from our God. And so the implicit question here in Paul's last words, and this is the question before us this morning, it's this. Do you truly love the Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible? Do you love him? Not do you know him, not do you try to live out biblical principles in your life, whatever that means, but do you love him? Do you love him? Paul finishes this high and lofty theological letter full of weighty and glorious truths with a simple call for us to examine ourselves, examine our hearts, examine our lives and our, our motivations, test them. After, after reading all of this letter and, and seeing all that's here, do you actually love this Jesus that's at the center of our gospel and at the center of our theology? It's the most important thing in Paul's mind that he could leave us with. You've got to get to the bottom of this, Christian. But before you can answer that for yourself, you've got to know, what does it mean to love the Lord Jesus Christ with a love that's incorruptible? What does that mean? Because for so many of us, I mean, the, love is just such a meaningless word, you know what I mean? We love so much, so many things in this world, but we, we love so little, truly. And so it's a word that's kind of hard for us to grasp sometimes, if we're honest. It's a squishy concept. 
what does it mean, biblically speaking, to love the Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love? What's in Paul's mind as he's saying that? Well, when talking about, about love, the Bible always gives us two main ways to think about it. Affection and allegiance. Affection and allegiance. Our love for Jesus should always involve our affections for him and our allegiance to him. It's always both. So first, affections. Loving Jesus means that we love him with our affections. Now look, I'm a dude. I get it. Uh, I'm a Christian, yes, but God made me a dude. Uh, And so the idea of me being affectionate with Jesus, you know, like cuddling up with him on the couch or something, it just doesn't do it for me. I'm sorry, am I allowed to say that? I mean, there are songs that are sung in in Christian churches that just, they actually make me feel physically uncomfortable to sing out loud to Jesus, if you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you don't. Maybe some of the guys in here know what I'm talking about. Because here's the deal. Jesus isn't my boyfriend. He's not. He's not your boyfriend either. You and Jesus aren't having some secret love affair whenever you have a quiet time with him in the morning or are singing songs to him on a Sunday. This isn't Michael Buble ballads for Jesus that we're doing up here, Okay? That's not what's in view when the Bible speaks of loving Jesus with our affections. Loving him with our affections is not the same thing as saying that we are affectionate with him, as I would be with my wife and as my wife is with me. No, what affections for Jesus means is that when you think of him, who he is, what he's done, your heart is filled with an uncontrollable admiration for him. You long for the day that you will be with him in his presence There's a stirring in your soul to worship him and sing praises to him and talk about him and hear from him. It means that you are proud of him. You're proud of him in in, in the purest sense of the word. My my brother is in the army. Uh, He's actually in the uh, army special forces, the Green Berets. He could kill you in 17 ways with his little finger. It's amazing. Um, You wouldn't even know it. And I always looked up to my brother. We were always really close. Uh, and I can remember that when he got accepted to the United States Military Academy at West Point, uh, we all as a family were real excited. We flew up there with him on his first day that he had to report for duty as a cadet. And the way they did it was first thing in the morning, you, you all, all the new cadets line up and their families are there. And there's excitement. There's a buzz in the air. And then they go through the line. And they, you know, you go at the front of the line, you go through the doors and you go into processing. And we say our goodbyes. We part ways. And all hell breaks loose for him. Uh, the military conditioning process begins. And I can remember the way they did it was at the end of that first day, they, uh, they had a, a parade march for all the new cadets uh, that, that day. Um, and they would have them march down the main drag, you know, in their n- newly shaven heads and their first-year uniforms and their hilariously unattractive standard-issue military glasses, uh, which was always fun for us to see. Uh, and the families would line the streets, and we're cheering on our cadets. And, and I can remember that, that as I was watching that parade, I, just, I was scanning every line in that parade. I wanted to see my brother. I wanted to spot him. And, and I got disappointed after, after a while because I, I felt like I might have missed him in this sea of fresh faces and white uniforms. And, and then all of a sudden, I remember at a distance, I spotted him. I saw him. And the moment that I saw him, tears just began to well up in my eyes when I saw him. Why? Because that's my brother. That's my brother. And I was filled with this overwhelming sense of admiration and brotherly affection for this marching cadet that I used to share a bathroom with. I mean, I was moved with a sense of deep satisfaction that I felt for having a brother like him. And that's what it looks like to have an affection for Jesus. 
You see him work and you hear his voice and you speak of his grace and his kindness and his power and you think about the day when the trumpet's going to sound, the clouds are going to part, and he's going to make all things new. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and he's going to bind up and heal every wound that we have and your heart just swells up with an affection and an excitement that is often too deep for words. Every faculty that you have available to you is engaged. That's why Jesus says that the greatest commandment in the whole Bible is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind, with all your soul and with all your strength. In other words, the affections that you feel for your God and King, they overtake every part of you, all that you are, your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. To love the Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible means that we love him with our affections. Love with our affections. Do you love Jesus in this way, Christian? Does he move you? When you gather here on Sundays to worship him, is this boring to you? I, I get that emotions come and go. We're not talking about emotions here. Those, this is far deeper than that. Has his power and his presence and his grace so grabbed a hold of you that you are overwhelmed with an abiding sense of admiration for him? Loving Jesus means that we, we love him with our affections. And second, loving Jesus means that we love him with our allegiance. We love him with our allegiance. Now, allegiance is something that's probably a little easier for us to get our minds around. If you're like me, you grew up in public school, you stood up every morning and you pledged allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. It's a steadfast loyalty, right? I will stand by Jesus and serve him and do what he says no matter what because he's the king. And as the king's subject, I do what the king says, period, end of discussion. Jesus says very clearly in John 14, 15, he says this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, your love for Jesus in this sense is directly tied to your allegiance to him as king, keeping his commandments, carrying out his word, standing with him even when it gets uncomfortable and you aren't necessarily feeling it. Look at the way this psalm describes this allegiance. Psalm chapter 2, verse 12. He says, kiss the son. Now that's a sign of, of loving allegiance, like one we give to a king. When you bow before him, you kiss his feet or his signet ring as a sign of respect and loyalty to his authority. You demonstrate your loyalty to your king. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And you say, wait a second, that doesn't sound like love. That sounds like servitude. That sounds like a really unhealthy, fear-based subjugation that he's calling me into. But finish the verse with me. He says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. We love Jesus with this kind of allegiance and loyalty because we know that his ways are good. His ways are right. His call on our life to be generous with our money is good and it's right. His requirement that we be a people who forgive, even as we've been forgiven, is good and it's right. His definition of marriage, regardless of what the culture or the courts say, is good and it's right. His commandments are meant to lead us to blessing. Listen, any, anything else that you have your allegiance to, any, anything else that you are loyal to, the culture, political party, political candidate, pop psychology, self-help practices, it, it will go very badly for you. Because only he is good. 
And, and we are blessed, the psalm says, if we take refuge in him and him alone. And we do what he says, regardless of how we may feel about it. Regardless of what it costs us, his ways are right and true and good. Now, if I can just be candid with you for, for a minute, um, I believe that this aspect of loving Jesus is going to become more and more important for us as Christians in this country. Now, I'm in Austin. Austin's weird, um, if you didn't know. Austin has the second, it's a city with the second highest population of homosexuals in this country, second only to San Francisco. Now, I'm not up here to talk about all that this morning. I understand Pastor Wells has spoken very clearly about that and eloquently, so I'd point you to that. But, I, but what I will say is this. There was a, um, where I come from in Austin, there was a study done, um, it was a high-level study done, and it, it found that 60% of non-church-going people, 60% of people who don't go to church, say that Christians who believe what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality are bigots. 60%. Austin, Texas. That's in your backyard. It's coming for you, Christian. I don't care how nice or cool or fun or respectful or culturally relevant you are. The culture is going to sniff out where your allegiance is real quick. To love the Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible means that he has our allegiance. Do you love Jesus in this way, Christian? Do you remain faithful and steadfast in your obedience to him, or do your allegiances waver depending on how you feel that particular day? When was the last time that you actually took active steps of obedience toward the commands of our king, even at great cost to yourself? Affections and allegiance. An incorruptible love of our Lord Jesus Christ. It includes both. And Paul is calling the Ephesians to love Jesus like this. But if you keep reading your Bibles, you know the story, right? Decades later, the Apostle John will write the words of Jesus to the Ephesian church. And here's what he says to them. He says, I have this against you. This is Jesus talking. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Ephesians. In other words, your love for me, Ephesians, has been corrupted. The word Paul uses here for incorruptible, it means sincere, pure, unmixed, unadulterated. It means that your love for Jesus isn't going to corrode over time under pressure. But, but the reality is, is that if you only express love for Jesus in one way over the other, your love for him is going to be corrupted over time. That's just reality. We see this all the time in marriages, right? Beginning of the marriage, affections are really hot and heavy and things seem to be going great. But then all of a sudden, the affections just kind of burn out. And they get pulled to something else or someone else and the marriage just falls apart. Or the marriage begins with this really deep sense of commitment to one another. Allegiance runs deep. I'm digging my heels in. I'm not going anywhere. I don't care what happens. But even though you're committed to one another, over time, you're living together, you're raising the kids, you're doing the dishes, doing the laundry, going to work, taking the kids to soccer practice. And there's just no pursuit anymore of one another's hearts. There's no romancing of the other. And the marriage just kind of withers there on the vine. It's, it's, it's lifeless. So here's the reality. All of us who are Christians in this room, all of us, if we're honest this morning, we probably struggle with one over the other. If your love for Jesus is going to be corrupted over time, it's going to either be in your affections for him or in your allegiance 
to him. It's going to be one or the other. You might be hearing this this morning and you're going, man, I just really, really love Jesus. I, I, I love, my heart just melts when I sing worship songs to him or I hear preaching. Your affections are moved by Jesus, but there's little allegiance to him in your day-to-day life and your finances and the way you spend your time and the way that you guard yourself sexually and the way that you avoid doing hard things in your life, things that might require humbling yourself or, or being uncomfortable. You see, it's these practical day-to-day things that really just serve to show that your main allegiance is to yourself. Or maybe you're here this morning and, and you really, really love the, the power and the authority of Jesus and you're really, really good at keeping commandments and making sacrifices and keeping your sinful desires and impulses in check. You're really good at keeping a calendar, keeping a schedule. You're organized. You're on time. Someone at work makes you really angry and you don't blow up at them. You hold your tongue. You see an immodestly dressed woman walk by or on the TV and you, you're quick to change the channel or avert your eyes. You have no problem kissing the sun, as the psalm says. You have no problem showing and demonstrating your outward allegiance and loyalty to your king. But here's something terrifying to think about. Neither did Judas. Judas didn't have a problem kissing the son either that night that he betrayed him in in Gethsemane. You see, it's possible to kiss the son with your outward allegiance, but still betray him with affections that are moved by something else. By money. By career advancement. By the approval of others. By college football. Whatever it is that really gets you excited and gets your heart moving. My prayer for us this morning was that the Lord would lead us all to a place of self-examination. We do so many things as Christians, good things. Church services, missions, Bible studies, we sing songs, we volunteer in ministries, all good things. We should do them even more so. But it's so easy for us to do all of these things and miss the whole point of the Christian life. Loving Jesus with a love that's incorruptible. And so the real question for us this morning isn't necessarily what does it mean to love Jesus with an incorruptible love. We could study that all day until we're blue in the face and it wouldn't change anything about us fundamentally. The real question for you this morning is how? How do I love him more? How do I make sure that my love for him isn't corruptible? How do I grow in greater, greater, greater and greater affections for him? How do I grow in my allegiance to him? And the answer is very simple, but it takes time and it takes humility. You go to this Jesus who loved you first with a love that's incorruptible. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. We love because he first loved us. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. You go to this Jesus who loved you first and you see his love that he loved us with. You go to his word and you saturate yourself with its promises that he's made to you, believer. 
You go to places like Ephesians 1, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight and you read that and you believe he's talking about you you go to places like Ephesians 2 which says but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And you read that and you believe he's talking about you. You go to places like Ephesians 3 which says, For this reason, Paul prays, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And you read that and you believe he's talking about you. He's talking about you. And then you go to him and you ask him as sincerely and as humbly as you know how, Lord, would you fill me with your love? I can't do it on my own. My affections for you are far too small, far too weak. My allegiance for you is far too shaky, God. Would you enlarge my heart's affections for you? Would you cause me to walk in steadfast allegiance to your ways, God? And as you go to Jesus and you see him, more and more and more through his word, through the good news of his perfect life, death, burial, resurrection for you. And you see the intensity of his love for you and laying his life down to redeem you and rescue you from Satan's sin and death. Your heart begins to change. That's why we as Christians, we're so serious about Bible study and we're so serious about preaching and, and singing songs to him. Because the more that we see about him, about all that he is and all that he's done, our hearts begin to change. Our minds get renewed. They get transformed. New affections rise up for him as you think about him and sing to him and spend time hearing from him in his word. Your allegiance begins to bend away from serving only yourself day in and day out and toward serving him and sacrificing whatever it takes for your God and King. Your love for him is incorruptible, Christian when you begin to see more and more and more every day, every week, every year, his incorruptible love for you first in the gospel. Let it never be said of Wood's Edge that you have abandoned your first love. And let's be a people who love our king, not just with our emotions or our good preaching or our good worship music, but with everything that we are, with our affections for him and our allegiance to him. And grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? I've got to believe in a, in a room this size that 
There are people here who it's been years, they can't remember the last time that they have seen afresh or, or known the love of God that he has for us in Christ, laying his life down for us on the cross, rising from the dead for us so that we can have new life. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've never experienced that. You don't have a clue what I'm talking about. You've never experienced God's love for you in Christ. You've never heard this message of the gospel of Jesus laying his life down in love for us first. And if that's you this morning, I just want to ask that you, just in this quietness of this moment, if you will, just, just call out to him in your heart, just as honestly and naturally as you know how. Ask him to open your eyes to see. Open your ears to hear his love for you. Open your heart to receive new revelations from his word of all the ways that he loves us in the gospel. Father, I, I pray for my friends here that as we think about our love for you, as we think about your love for us, Father, that we would be swept away with the knowledge that our God and our King took on flesh, humbled himself, was born, grew up, lived a perfect sinless life, and died on a cross that he didn't deserve, that we deserved, for us because he loved us. His love overcame our sin, our death, the grip that Satan had on us. Father, I pray that that love would, would, would move us, God, in this room. Not just move us emotionally, God, but move us with new affections and new allegiances that we didn't know we had. Move us to be a people who take risks for your namesake in this world. Move us to be a people who do things in this world that the world looks at and thinks is foolish because of our love for our God and King. Jesus, we need you by your, the power of your Holy Spirit in us to awaken that we can't do it on our own. Would you do that in us, Lord, as we look to you? We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.